Father, we pray that you would prepare our hearts now to consider the things that are before us that relate to all that our Savior endured for us, that through his sacrifice we might have life. Please, Lord, be present with us, for we ask it in his precious name. Amen. When it comes to the subject of sin, the word of God does not take race, ethnicity, nationality, or skin shade into account. When it comes to the subject of sin, it doesn't reckon the matter on the basis of wealth or poverty, social standing, political preference or position in life. It doesn't address one's sex or upbringing or even one's age or experience in life. Nor does it take into account any era or century over another. It is all inclusive in what it says and it deals with the issue in a just and painfully equitable way. It simply says, for example, in Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 10, as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. In Romans 3.23, it says simply, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All. Makes no distinctions about time, place, sex, preferences of any sort. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Neither does the word of God suffer fools. It deals with protests from the guilty in a very terse and clear way. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, it says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. In Ecclesiastes 7.20, Solomon says, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. He doesn't exist. There's no such man. There's no such woman. There's no such child. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The sentencing of divine justice is unnegotiable. The righteous and holy law of the one true and living God, who is the maker of heaven and earth, has since the fall of Adam found all men and women guilty. It doesn't make any exceptions. It allows for no plea bargaining. It provides for no parole and makes no provision for reduced sentencing. It is swift. 
In fact, no sooner will the sentence be pronounced by Christ the judge, says Ferguson, but presently and without delay, the glorious power of their judge by the ministry of his mighty angels will cause the sentence quickly and without the least reprieve to be put in execution. The sentencing guidelines of the law are very simple. They are brief and simple. They are as just and as equitable as the findings of the law. Ezekiel 18 verse 4 says, Behold, and this is the Lord speaking, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. In Matthew 25, 41, Jesus himself speaking, says that those who are condemned under the law, he will say to those on his left, condemned by that law, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Terse, simple, brief sentencing guidelines. Paul puts it this way in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. That's it. The wages of sin is death. In 1 Corinthians 15.22, it says simply, in Adam, all die. All die. In Hebrews 9.27, we are told it is appointed to man to die once, and after that comes judgment. The nature of this judgment of death is also set forth, we might say to some extent in the word of God, very sharply. In Luke chapter 16 in verse 28, it is said to be carried out in a place of torment. So all have sinned, the sentencing is death, the death is carried out in a place of torment. That is, the judgment of sin carries on over to a place, or carries one over to a place of endless tormenting. Tormenting has an end in, in mind. And that end is to bring those subject to it to the end of who and what they are in themselves. To break them all the way down. And we know that. Because sometimes parents say to a brother or a sister, stop tormenting your brother or your sister. And what do they mean? Stop teasing and badgering them till you bring them to the point where they break down. And that's the purpose of tormenting. To bring one down to the end of himself. It is described as a sentence to a fiery furnace that brings one to a state of weeping and gnashing of teeth. In Matthew chapter 13 and in Matthew chapter 22. This weeping or, or wailing is defined as to cry not only with the expression of tears, but also with every external expression of grief. Webster takes that up in his syntax in the Greek New Testament. In Matthew 13, verse 41, we read, 
The Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. It is to be thrown into a state of outer darkness. Those sentenced to the judgment of sin are described as being cast out into outer darkness, the darkness, the outside, where the, the wailing and gnashing of teeth is heard in the thick blackness of night, says A.T. Robertson. It is a sentence to being bound and restrained in suffering. The idea is one of agonizing construct, constriction, as David describes it. Psalm 116, verse 3. The sorrows of death, David said, compassed me, and the pains of hell got hold upon me. I found trouble and sorrow. It is a judgment of burning torment in an undying fire that will never be quenched or satisfied, according to Jesus. And Isaiah tells you that the breath of the Lord like a stream of sulfur kindles this fire. That's in Isaiah chapter 30 and verse 33. The breath of the Lord like a stream of sulfur kindles the fire of judgment for sinners. This judgment is most equitable. It is in perfect accord with the law of God. Paul says that Jesus is coming again to judge the earth and that judgment will be most just, it will be most equitable and in perfect accord with the promise of his word. On that day he will appear with his holy angels as 2 Thessalonians 1.8 says in flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. It is a state of endless dying. The sentence upon sinners is described here as the destruction of both body and soul. It's a sentence from which there will be no escape. But as Ferguson observes, it shall not be the utter abolishing of their nature and being as the destruction of beasts is, but of their well-being and joy as the destruction of the fallen angels was. In Judges 1, or rather, excuse me, in Jude 1, uh, in the 6th and 7th verses of Jude, we read, The angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Those lost, beloved, in trespasses and sins are sentenced to a state of judgment that always exists and never ends. They shall still be dying an immortal death 
and yet be never dead, says Ferguson. Matthew Henry says in reference to Isaiah 66.24, if you're not familiar with that passage, Isaiah 66.24 says, And they shall go forth and look upon the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me. For their worm does not die, and their fire is not quenched. They shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. Henry says, The soul whose conscience is its constant tormentor is immortal, and God whose wrath whose wrath is its constant terror, is eternal. And it is all the power of Christ the judge who brings this judgment to bear on sinners. He is the one who will fulfill the sentence against them. And despite their wish for death and thereby some kind of relief from what they're enduring, he will, by that same power, uphold them under the full retribution of their sins. They will want to die. They will cry out to die. They will desire to die, to, fr- to be free and escape from this torment. But Christ will sustain them in that judgment as their judge. As, de- as divine justice will never cease to pursue the damned sinner until complete satisfaction be given for all his sins, So the wrong done against an infinite God by sin is such that damned sinners, notwithstanding all the torture and torment both in soul and body that they can endure, shall never be able unto all eternity to satisfy for it, says Ferguson. Now, if you came this morning expecting to hear a sermon on the beautiful scenes surrounding the triumphant entry of Christ into Jerusalem on what we call Palm Sunday, you may be feeling a bit disappointed and uh, perhaps even a little uncomfortable. Nevertheless, I'm going to conclude by making three points with you. And the first one brings us back to the scenes on that fateful day. If we look again at Luke chapter 19, if we we were there, uh, Mr. Batistin read to us from there a moment ago. If we look at that scene from Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 41, we read this. And when he, that is Jesus, drew near and saw the city, that is Jerusalem, he wept over it. He wailed and he sobbed at the sight of that city. When he saw it, that erupted out of his body. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And he cried and he wept, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. You, beloved, you want to get the power of what is going on with Christ at this moment. Because he's looking at the city and you notice he says they're going to tear you down and your children. This is the Savior who said, suffer the little children to come unto me. 
This is the Savior who loved them, who loved little children. And now he looks out over the city and he realizes that in this city there's going to be this terrible judgment because of the rejection of him as the Redeemer and the Savior. Because of their insistence in pursuing their sinfulness. And so the judgment of sin is going to come upon them. And when Jesus looks out over that city, he sobs, he wails. We've often spoken of the great contrast here between what's going on around Jesus and what he was seeing and thinking at the same time. The people were full of joy and they were celebrating and they were full of anticipation and a feeling of impending triumph. They were all happy. They were all rejoicing. They were all singing Hosanna. This was for them a great and glorious day. And so it should have been. This was the day spoken of by Zechariah the prophet. And this is Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 through 11. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off. And he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. It was supposed to be a day of great joy, thinking here comes the one who is going to offer himself for us so that through his sacrifice we can be liberated from the prison of sin. But they didn't see that. It wasn't what they were looking for. They hadn't given attention to the word of God. They hadn't given attention to this prophecy. And so they were looking for something completely different. And they were going to be bitterly disappointed. Because they were going to be in their sins. Because they would not accept the Redeemer. And fall into the judgment of that sin. Jesus knew full well that for the great majority of those who were parading about with palms and crying Hosanna that day, they had no real idea what they were doing or what was to come by the end of the week. But he knew. He knew exactly how this trip into the holy city was going to end. Now knowing that, you might expect that he would have been weeping for himself as the crowd turned on the mountain trail and the city of Jerusalem fell into view. Jesus would look on Jerusalem and say, Oh no, this is the place of my rejection. This is the place of my humiliation. This is the place of my torment. This will be the place of my shameful death. It's just about to happen. It's just a week away. And that he'd be weeping over that. But it's not for himself that he weeps at that moment. But for those, as Thessalonians says, who do not know God and who will not obey his gospel. It's for them that he weeps at this moment. Not for himself but for those who are going to fall under the condemnation of sin. 
Matthew Henry says, What a tender spirit Christ, Christ was of. We never read that he laughed, but we often find him in tears. And so we find him on this day, not smiling and laughing with the crowd, but weeping and sobbing within his soul. Now, the loud wailing and sobbing that Jesus does at this moment reveals to you and me the depth of the anguish that he was feeling in his human nature. It was all but overwhelmed that nature by what he knew in his divinity was ahead for Jerusalem and his people because of their sin and their rejection of God and his word. Let me ask you, you children, did you ever see maybe one of your brothers or your sisters who was crying, maybe quietly? And the natural thing is to go up to them and say, what's wrong? Why, why are you crying? Why, why, what happened? Why, why are you crying like that? What's making you cry? And you do that because you know that the tears have a cause. That there's a reason for the crying. And the, and the tears are just the outward expression of some hurt or some suffering or some pain within. And often the, the cause isn't seen. The reason Jesus weeps here, beloved, is because of the rebellion and the unbelief of men and women against his love and against God's authority. That's what brings these tears to his eyes. That's what brings this sob out of his soul. It is a manifestation of what he is dealing with internally in his soul as he sees this in front of him and it all stands before him with his knowledge. Matthew Henry says, the sin and folly of those that persist in a contempt of gospel grace are a great grief to the Lord Jesus and should be so to us. He looks with weeping eye upon lost souls that continue impenitent and run headlong upon their own ruin. He had rather that they would turn and live and go on and die than go on and die. For he is not willing that any should perish. So that's the scene for this day. And the thing I want to emphasize is that those tears, that sobbing, is the outward manifestation of what he is suffering inwardly when he looks on that city. And that brings me to the second point. And I want to say, beloved, that I tread very cautiously here. I tread fearfully, even dreadfully, for fear that I'll somehow mar this matter. And I don't want to do that. Beloved, all the things that you and I associate with Christ's suffering and his death are as brutal as they are because that's what was required of him to deal on your behalf with the guilt and the judgment of sin 
that we've just described. When you go back and look at how we opened up with, with what sin was or, and what it does and what its judgment is and how, how uh, uncompromising its judgment is, well, when you see Christ in his agony as he's suffering for your sins, you see that outward manifestation of that suffering because that's what is required to pay for sins that are under that judgment. That's what was required of him. And so you're seeing it erupting to the surface in outward forms, but it is all a picture of the inward agony that Christ is under as he bears your sins that deserve that judgment that we spoke of. You are supposed to die because of your sin. You are supposed to shamefully die because of your sin. And Christ stands in your place and suffers that shameful death for you. The tears he shed on that mountain trail were the outward expression of things much deeper. And in a similar way, all the outward manifestations of the suffering, all the endured physically under the burden of your sins, was just that, the outward expression of things much deeper. Now that's not to say that the outward sufferings were merely symbolic, that he wasn't really suffering those things, no, beloved, but they were emblematic. His agony and sorrow were very real. But they were the eruptions, the surface of the intense agony that came from having the iniquity of us all laid on him, the righteous and holy one. It's, what, it's the outward manifestations of what it meant for him to bear the stripes that were necessary for your healing and my healing. As the good and godly Thomas Brooks put it, the death of Christ on the cross was a bitter death, a sorrowful death, a bloody death. The bitter thoughts of his suffering put him into a most dreadful agony. The bloody death that you see Jesus Christ enduring on the cross was the death sin deserved. The excruciating agony was part of the suffering warranted. You think of his bloody sweat in the garden. Luke chapter 22, verse 44 says, And he, being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. The agony he was enduring, beloved, is beyond human comprehension. The best human language can do here is to describe this anguish as two combatants struggling to the death. What you are witnessing is perfect righteousness bearing sin before divine justice. This is, as Brooks says, his reacting to the terrible justice of God pouring out his high anger and indignation upon him on the account of all the sins of his chosen that were laid upon him. Nothing could be more dreadful. 
Beloved, what you see there in him sweating the, the drops of blood, as it were, and bearing all of the agony of the cross, that's what it looks like to fulfill what we read in Isaiah 53, beginning in verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And I would urge you not to turn away from this scene. Under this judgment for your sins, he sweat as it were a downpour of bloody sweat. That same term, falling to the ground, his bloody sweat, is used in another familiar place. And some of you have sung those words frequently as children. When the wise man builds his house upon the rock, what happens? the rains come down, right? And the rivers fill and there's a flood. In the Gospels, where, it's, where Jesus gives that story, when he says that the rains come down, it's the same word that Luke uses to describe the outpouring of Christ's bloody sweat in the garden. Not little droplets falling on the ground, but a downpour of sweat pouring out of his body. A flood, as it were. Because of the agony within. It's, it's the outward manifestation of the agony of bearing our sins. We read in Luke chapter 22 and verses 63 through 65. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. As they punched him in the face. When he's under the high priest, they're slapping him. But the guards, the Roman guards, they're not slappers. They're punchers. And they're punching him in the face. They also blindfolded him and kept and kept him asking him, Prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. Why do you have to undergo such mockery at the hands of these men? Because sin made a mockery of you. Sin makes a mockery of you. Of everyone who is guilty of it. And while it's true that only fools make a mock of sin, it's also true that sin makes a mockery of fools. So he has to suffer the mockery that he does at the hands of these men because you have suffered at the hands of the mockery of sin and he's dying for your sins 
In chapter 23, verse 11, we read, And Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arrayed him in splendid clothing. He sent him back to Pilate. There's the flogging and the humiliation. John chapter 19, verse 1 tells us, Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, stripped open his back with a whip. Why did he have to suffer that? Because that's what you do to fools. Remember what Proverbs says? The back of the fool is for flogging. That's what it is. And we fools, because of our sin, our backs are for flogging. But Christ interposed his back between us and the whip and took the beating for us. Matthew 27, verses 27 through 31, we read, Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him. And they took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. The cause of this brutality, beloved, was our proud transgression of the holy law of our good and gracious God. The rebellion of sinners against such love and such care and such kindness and grace under the the, the love of God deserves such treatment. God is the one who has given us life. God is the one who has given us all things. And sin is a rebellion against him. It's a defiance of him. It's it's a rejection of his love and of of his kindness. And such a rejection deserves such a judgment. And you see, there isn't any escaping the judgment. The judgment has to be paid. Remember we said about the sentencing guidelines are simple? You sin, you die. And the only way you and I can escape that sentence is if someone comes and stands in our place and dies for us. Someone who has no guilt and no sin of his own. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ who came and stood in our place. So there's no lessening of the judgment because Christ stood for us. No, it was poured out on him like you see and like you know from your understanding of the scripture. It's poured out all on him and he's suffering an agony that is unimaginable to you and me for our sakes that we might escape that death that is due to our sins. Remember what they charged Jesus with when they treated him this way? They said he was a rebel against the law of man and God. You know, we look at that and we say, no, he wasn't. (laughs) He wasn't chargeable with any crime, but you were. You see, you're the rebels against the law of man and God. 
And that's why Christ had to stand and accept those charges upon himself. Because he's doing it for you. So when they say, you're a rebel against God and against man, it's you that's being spoken of there. And me. Believe me, I'm not leaving myself out of this at all. Who are the blasphemers? I am the blasphemer. Who's the one who uses the Lord's name in vain? I am the one who uses the Lord's name in vain. You're the ones who do it. But he's the one charged with it. And we say, no, 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 he was innocent of all that. Yes, he was. But he's bearing your sins. And that's why he's receiving the charge against him. A liar. A criminal. A criminal worthy of death. A shameful death. Now we know he was innocent. So we grieve at these unjust charges. But when we recall that the Lord laid upon him the iniquity of us all, and that's why he's willingly subjecting himself to such treatment, it's as if I were standing before the judgment. Because if I was, this judgment would be this judgment would be just. If this were me standing before God in my sins, this would all be just. And it becomes just in this sense because Christ is standing there for you and for me. We come to the crucifixion itself, and when we ask why was the innocent surrendered to the will of the mob by Pilate, the answer is that he was surrendered over to the shameful death of a despicable criminal because he was bearing your iniquity. And this is the wages of sin. Mark 15 says, And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. Death on the cross was painful, it was lingering, it was shameful, and it was cursed. Philippians 2.8 says, In being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Matthew 27, verse 45, we find the words that uh, John was saying to us not too long ago. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling for Elijah. Thomas Brooks says, it was more for Christ to suffer one hour than for us to have suffered forever. But his death was lengthened out, nevertheless. This time, in this cry of the Savior, we're hearing an outward manifestation of the inward agony. These words were, as you read, misunderstood at the time. And they continue to be misunderstood and underestimated. That cry is emblematic of the unseen suffering of his soul for sinners. 
Isaiah 53 and verse 10 it says, It pleased Jehovah to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When you shall make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of Jehovah shall prosper in his hand. But you have determined to make his soul an offering for sins and to put him to grief. In Matthew 26, verse 37, we read, And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. In other words, he's saying, as he enters the garden, this isn't just the suffering of my flesh. This is the agony of my soul that I am enduring. Brooks again says, he began, he began to be terrified with wonderful astonishment and to be satiated, filled brimful with heaviness. A very sad condition. All the sins of the elect, like a huge army meeting upon Christ, made a dreadful onset on his soul. And this soul suffering was carried all the way to the cross. And so the prophet Jeremiah, speaking in Christ's name in Lamentations 1.12 says, Is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? Look and see if there's any sorrow like my sorrow, which was brought upon me, which the Lord inflicted on the day of his fierce anger. Thomas Kelly said, If you think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great. Here you see its nature rightly. Here its guilt, they estimate. Mark the sacrifice appointed. See who bears the awful load. Tis the word, the Lord's anointed, son of man and son of God. And look lastly, it's the third point here, and consider the surrender the Lord Jesus made of his own life. We're told in John 19.30, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up the spirit. No one, he says, took his life from him. He surrendered his life. And the same Savior who has the power to sustain the guilty under a constant state of judgmental death for eternity had the power to sustain his own life even on the cross. But he chose not to do it for you. And so he surrendered it for your sake that he might die your death. So beloved, it's through him and him alone that anyone can escape the sentence of death and suffering for sin that we began with today. And I don't know your hearts. I've heard the confession of faith of many of you, but I don't know your hearts. The Lord knows your hearts. But how can anyone turn away from such a Savior, from such a Redeemer, from the one who says, I will put myself between the whip and you. I will put myself between death and you. I will bear the agony of your sins. 
in my righteousness, I will bear it and stand for you. How can you turn away such a Savior? How can you turn a back on such a Redeemer? And that's why Thessalonians says that when he comes in judgment, there will be retribution towards all of those who do not believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because what they're saying is, I reject that. I reject that sacrifice. I reject that offering. I reject that love. I reject that kindness. I reject that grace. And I'm standing in my sin for myself. If you stand there, beloved, you will bear the price of that sin. And the wages of sin is death. There is no negotiation. The judgment is equitable. It doesn't matter what color you are. doesn't matter what nation you're from. doesn't matter what age you live in. doesn't matter what your circumstances are. The soul that sins will die unless you put your faith in the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. In 2 Corinthians 5, 21, it says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that we in him might become the righteousness of God. Peter says in 1 Peter 2.24, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And I've taken a long time this morning, but I'll just end with this. To all of you who know Christ as your Savior, Look again at these scenes and recognize that what is going on here, what you're reading here, are the outward manifestations of what he was inwardly enduring for your sakes. And fall on the knees of your heart and give thanks to God for such love, for such grace, for such a Redeemer. Father in heaven, we ask you to bless us now under your word. Lord, it is so clearly stated, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The judgment is so clearly stated, the soul that sins shall die. But the gospel is also clearly stated. And in it, Lord, you promise that all who put their faith in the death of the Lord Jesus Christ as the substitutionary atonement for those sins will know life and know it more abundantly. And Lord, we pray that everyone who knows that, who's here this morning, that Lord, we'll rejoice together and we'll sing not Hosanna, but thank you, Lord. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for redeeming us. Thank you for rescuing us. And Father, if there's anyone here who's without that hope, I pray that they will be able to cry, not happily or thoughtlessly Hosanna, but Lord, sincerely cry, Hosanna, Lord, save, Lord, save me now, because now is the day of salvation. Thank you, Lord, for sending your son to die for us. Thank you, Lord, for all that is ours in him. And thank you for this wonderful and blessed gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.